Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the new podcast where we invite members of the historical community to get angry to get a few things off their chest. My name is Paul Babel, and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Kyle Glover. Hello! And this week's guest is here to talk about the deep, dark world of counter-invasion. This week, we have Second World War historian and press officer for the Coles Hill Auxiliary Research Team, Andy Chatterton. Hello, Andy. Hello there, how are you? Oh, very well. How are you, sir? Yeah, very good, very good. Thank you. Excellent. Well, before we dive in on what the uh, what annoys the hell out of you, let's just ask a little bit about the sort of stuff that you do actually like. Tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and the work that you do. Yeah, so I, outside of my day job, am, a, as you said, the press officer for the Coles Hill Auxiliary Research Team, which are a group of uh, volunteer researchers who look into the auxiliary units and special duties branch and various other aspects of, of as, as you said, civilian anti-invasion groups that, that were set up during the early part of the Second World War, all of which were highly secret, most of whom went to the grave without telling anyone what they got up to, including family and friends, but are just the most remarkable people uh, who we believe uh, at CART deserve so much more public recognition and official recognition than, the, than they ever got. They didn't even get the Defence Medal. Uh, for example, that the, the Home Guard got. So, so I, I help uh, promote what we find, show pictures of secret underground bunkers. It's all very exciting. A lot more interesting than my day job. And yeah, we just we just help research and try and find out as much as much as we can about these guys in order to 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 boost the recognition in the public, which I think we've been doing generally a, a good job over the last few years. At least um, I think the recognition has gone up. But this. One, lots more to do on that point, and there's loads, there's loads more out there that we're still finding about every day. There's still relatives coming forward. We're still te- informing relatives that their granddad or their dad wasn't actually just a home guard, but actually a uh, highly trained guerrilla, uh, guerrilla warfare and sabotage and silent killer. Uh, so yeah, it's it's great. I love it, and it's uh, it's endlessly fascinating. 
Now you kind of hinted there with the uh, you know, with the silent killer and the not just the home guard. So, so I'm going to have to ask you. It's like the core question of history, Rage. Andy, what is the one thing you really wish people would just stop believing? Yeah. So it is that it is that thing that uh, in the summer of 1940 that Britain was one alone, two weak, and three basically sitting back and waiting for the inevitable invasion to happen. And the only thing that stopped it was Hitler's nervousness, the, the failure of Operation Sea Lion and the RAF. In fact, had the Germans managed to get across, there were whole layers of secret defence in place ready to ready to take them on to to make sure that there wasn't a blitzkrieg as, as happened in the in, in the Low Countries in France. And the what really winds me up is this almost pride that we have in this country that we were that that we were just basically uh, old men with pitchforks lining the cliffs uh, ready to take on panzers and that 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 pride has kind of built over over the last 80 years and and things like dad's army which i love and it's hilarious has built on that perception of of us being uh, almost a bit of a joke and unorganized and and a little bit pathetic yeah, a little bit laughable. Yeah. A little bit bumbling. A little bit British. A very, uh, yes. The the stereotypical British view of us in 1940 is essentially Corporal Jones. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, that's, that's, that's what I say. Where, whereas, whereas the, you know, in my mind and, and, and the stuff that we research and find out about is actually by the end of 1940, there are like nearly 4,000 highly trained guerrilla saboteurs waiting in secret bunkers for the for the Germans to, to come across. There was a network of 3,000 highly trained civilian spies and wireless operators pu- ready to pass on information about the invading army. And that's, and that's nothing to say about the bloody Royal Navy ready to come down and disrupt anything coming across. It's not to say anything about the RAF plan we've got in place exactly for this situation, which was then implemented pretty well. And, and you know, that... The, there was nothing about Britain in 1940 that was that was weak and 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 alone. We went alone. We got a whole bloody empire. We got thousands and thousands <laughs> of men. We got a, you know. It's it's just a weird pride we have in in that. And it's and you and you're right. It's that perception of Britishness of of sitting down of having a cup of tea and just saying, well, if they come, they come. We'll we'll sort something out. It'll be fine. But in fact, there, there was huge amounts of organization huge numbers of layers of highly secret defense being put in place aside from pillboxes and stop lines and all the stuff that you see on the surface it's just i feel like we should have a new pride in the fact that we were strong that we were prepared and you know we had the opportunity to prepare because we had the channel in the way otherwise otherwise it, it could well have been another blitzkrieg but we had the opportunity to prepare we took that opportunity and in fact even before Sorry, even before... Even Go on, before, this is what the rage is all about. Carry on, please even do. Before, even before the war had started, we had SIS and Section D going to Europe, going to countries almost surrounding Germany and talking to them about how they can set up some kind of resistance in advance. So we went to, we went to Czechoslovakia. Guys from SIS and um, military intelligence research were talking to the Skoda Works about how they could blow up their factories before the Germans got their hands on it. Unfortunately, it was all just a bit too late. Colonel Gubbins, who helped... I love that name. Units. Gubbins is a great name, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Uh, he, he, Colin Gubbins. I mean, that's just such a good name. Uh, he, he extended the auxiliary units the length of the country. He was in Poland talking to the Polish government about, about setting up resistance forces as the Germans were, were, were entering. We, we knew the threat... And, and I think this also comes from 
from from appeasement and from Chamberlain and from this kind of uh, lead up to the war where there's this perception of of us kind of just giving Hitler what he wanted and to an extent politically that was happening but underneath that that you know the SIS and uh, military intelligence research were, were all Czechoslovakia Poland the Nordics talking to these countries about potential resistance forces and when that turned out to be a bit too late because the Germans are already cracking on it was just taken back to Britain and we'd started that as well with the home defense scheme with with SIS and the auxiliary units with, with military intelligence research so the, the whole point is we weren't weak we weren't alone the invasion was never going to happen but if it did happen we weren't just sit there having a cup of tea and reading the telegraph we were going to be ruthless and from a from a general perception of Britain at that time, very un-British in terms we, of in terms we were of ready we were for carry it, out. Basically. Yeah, it really, was, exactly right. You know, we we are Britain. Bring it, Hitler. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly right. So why do we? Why do we? Is this idea of uh, of like Dad's Army and Corporal Jones and Sergeant Wilson and being the entire Home Guard just? just so damn hard to shift. I mean, you can't move for, like, pride in the Battle of Britain, pride in the Hitler never got managed to invade, you know. Yeah. Just just why can't we shift this for, from the British people? Just for perspective, I was born, like, decades after Dad's army finished airing, and I have posters and calendars and memorabilia from it in this room. That's how deeply ingrained Dad's yeah, army is. Yeah, so why? Yeah, yeah, and dad's and dad's army certainly didn't didn't help in 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 that, and 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 it came at a time when so I think after the war, Britain almost tried to as the war was coming to an end, and just after all, Britain was trying to portray this thing of us being on our own to try and persuade the the the, the US that we're not this great big empire and and that we weren't we weren't kind of land grabbing. I think there's, a, there's an extent. And then and then Dad's army came in the like, kind of late 60s, early 70s, just just to kind of carry on that momentum. But also there's this pride, you know, keep calm and carry on, which wasn't actually a poster that ever came out. But it's just stuff like that that, that keeps the momentum going of this, of, this, of this pride we have in the fact that we were being very British about it. We were, we were gathering golf clubs and pitchforks and we were going to take the dastly Germans on at the, you know, as, as they came across and we were going to... We are going to give these Jerry's what for? Yeah, they don't like it up and we're going to stick a pitchfork, you know, into a panzer tank and, that, and, 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 and that's fine and that's absolutely fine. And, and, and to an extent in the very early days for, for a couple of months, it, it, it was a bit like that, certainly with the LDV. But also... I feel like we should have more of a pride in in the fact that it that it wasn't anything like that, and that, and that over eighty years that this this momentum of of what Britain was like one as a, as a country at that time, and 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 two how prepared we were going to be has just continued generation after generation after generation, and and even now when we when we you know we we speak to journalists, so I've just got a. Uh, I've just spoken to the Telegraph. We got a piece in the Telegraph the other day, and he did. He wrote a nice piece on the on the special duties grant, but the but the headline and the main picture was still about Dad's army. Of course, of course it is because one that's that's an attention grabber, right? I, I'm, I'm a PR man by trade, right? I know that journalists use attention grabbing headlines. It doesn't necessarily have to be accurate, but it's what's going to draw the reader in and get them to read it. I understand that, mm. but it's not accurate. And it, but it, but it adds to that momentum and portrayal of of Britain this time. The other thing is that 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 it's not this period isn't extensively taught in schools, particularly. You kind of do the Munich crisis and and then bits and pieces afterwards. But there isn't anyone necessarily telling 
future generations that that wasn't the case and they're kind of built up with what their parents are telling them what their grandparents are telling them it's just carrying on that momentum so so it just carries on no matter what and that's you know what, what we're trying to do with with cart is change that uh, that particular perception uh, just to clarify for the listeners who don't know, SIS, that's uh, Secret Intelligence Services, isn't it? Um, what we call MI6, James Bond's sort of group. That's exactly it, yeah. 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 And uh, Section D, they're kind of D for destruction, the forerunners of Special Operations Executive, the sort of sabotage and um, blowing things up and damaging the German war effort behind the enemy lines. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so I would say section D. Yeah, close enough. Close enough. Yeah. Section D was SIS. SOE was obviously military. And actually, mm. uh, I, 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 there's lots of evidence of SIS kind of messing about with S, SOE stuff in France. Yeah. But but Not yes, but very very similar. So so starting resistance forces in Europe. Yeah. 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 Just to just to clarify for listeners who don't know. Can you tell us a bit about the, the the people in the auxiliaries then, and you know who they are and and what they're what they're there to do? Yeah. So so again, this kind of goes against our. This isn't Dad's army, right? So this these are the 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 auxiliary units were recruited the length of the country, so from Scotland down the east coast, southeast corner, south coast, southwest, and south Wales, and they the intelligence officers were sent out to find patrols of between six and eight men in key areas where they could set up a patrol and 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 do and do damage to the invading army and the type of type of chaps they looked for were not corporal jones or captain mannerings they were uh young fit mainly men in reserved occupations so guys who were who would have otherwise have joined the armed forces but couldn't because they were farmers or miners or uh, farm workers or estate workers or gamekeepers or, or whatever it might have been so these guys are not are not dad's army they are they are fit they are strong they are determined they know their local area intimately which is hugely important uh, they can they can travel across fields at night and they're mainly it's all on the coastal crush so their role would have been as the german invading army pushed into their towns they would have they would have disappeared all these guys signed the official secrets act so so their their friends and family would have absolutely no idea where they where they have gone, and they would have disappeared to a secret, disguised underground bunker uh, where they would have sometimes literally have waited for the Germans to pass over the top of them, and then come out at night and disrupted the s- supply chain. So this isn't about taking on the German army face to face. This isn't this isn't having a gunfight with them. This is about trying to stop the advance happening. This is also not the French resistance. This isn't a post-occupation long-term effort. This is a but basically a suicidal two-week effort. They, they had enough rations for two weeks, and that was, their, that was their life expectancy. But they were to come out at night, and then they were to destroy, destroy the supply chain. So blow up bridges, blow up ammo dumps, blow up convoys, blow up park trucks, blow up airfields, planes, blow up country houses that have been taken um, by the Germans as, as, as local HQs. And, and and do anything that they can for a you know as they understood a short period to slow down the advance because the Blitzkrieg obviously flew through 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 France and the Low Country and it was the spearhead carrying on but it was the supply chain following up that allowed that spearhead to continue so anything that could disrupt that supply chain from helping the spearhead uh, would want you know slow down the advance generally but it would also give the regular army then time to the British regular army to time to take a step back to gather themselves and then to counterattack effectively. So this is this isn't this isn't about taking on the Germans in in the streets. This is about a uh, highly secret, highly trained civilian guys and also you know 
train killers to to go and cause as much chaos as they could for as long a period as they could but but realistically probably about two weeks so we're looking at loads of noise loads of chaos loads of disruption loads of damaging everything that the germans could possibly use within this country and that's broadly the overall military objective there's there's no end game here other than to eventually just be hunted down and killed exactly right so so once the germans in, were in their area there is no communication from outside so the guys there's no there's no there's no phone there's no orders coming in generally so these guys were completely on their own they'd already identified targets that they would take out immediately both both phys- physical targets and and human targets but after that, then they would, you know, they'd have a, a, an observational post where they could keep an eye out on for potential for potential targets. As they were coming back from destroying something, they'd also be the lookout for, for the next night's target. So, yeah, it's it's about causing as much as well. Anything that would put, pause the advance, anything that would make the Germans think, what the hell's going on here? We need to, to stop, get more supplies in because that's all been destroyed, but also find out what the hell's going on because we can't move on because all our ammo's gone, all our fuel's gone, all the train lines been blown up, whatever it might be. Anything that slows down that advance and gives our guys a chance to to, to, to recover and counterattack. That's that's the aim. Excellent. Well, I'll gather then, Carl, that you've got a uh, you've got a question basically about pretty much the first order that comes in, yeah? Yeah. So after the invasion happens, we keep hearing stories and reports that the auxiliaries were ordered to basically assassinate the people who had brought them in, people who knew who they were and what they were doing. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, we think so. <laughs> yeah, we do. Because if you think about it, they're as I said, they've got they've got two weeks, right, to do as much damage mm. as they can. Anything anything that has the potential to limit that time, they would they would get rid of immediately. So whether that is the guy that the, the policeman who had to go through their records to make sure they were uh, okay to join the auxiliary units he wouldn't have known they're joining the auxiliary units but he would have seen their names together on a yeah. list he would have to go because if the germans got hold of him he would he might well have said that the intelligence officer the guy who went around to the counties to form these groups obviously would have to have been taken out by someone because he knew where every patrol was where every secret underground base was uh, potential targets he knew everything yeah and 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 he'd have to be a type he'd either have to kill himself or he would he would be assassinated anyone who accidentally discovered the operational base was a was a was a potential target so whether that is an elderly couple in a house overlooking a bunker who occasionally saw the troops going in the first guys this particular patrol in cornwall would have to go and sort out was this elderly couple in the house yeah we've got examples of of young boys accidentally discovering discovering the discovering the operational bases these underground bunkers it, it, there's a mix of whether they'd be on the list or actually they were forcibly forced to join the patrol so yeah, absolutely, they would have to do that because because it all of that has the potential to. They only had two weeks anyway, probably. So all of that has the potential to to reduce the amount of time they could be effective, and that again goes against this whole thing that we have of Britain being lovely, lovely people, not being yeah. ruthless, just being you know playing cricket with a straight bat, everything like that. that's not what that's not what this is about. This is about utter ruthlessness. This is about having an objective, having knowing that you've got a short amount of time to achieve that objective and getting rid of anything that might well have got in the way of achieving that objective. So so this, again, goes against this whole thing that we have about Britain at this time and, and continues to wind me up because, I, you know, I've spoken to these guys. And these guys weren't like psycho killers. I mean, they didn't want to do this stuff, but they, they saw the bigger picture and said, if we have to do it, then we had to do it because we knew we knew that would, you know, that that was our task. Yeah, this all sounds 
incredibly brutal and ruthless, but it is the survival of Britain and countless other British lives that are at stake here. You don't want to kill this elderly couple or these kids who've just stumbled across your base, but you have to for the greater good. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and as you say, it's, it's, it's essentially for Western democracy, isn't really? it, really? Because, because if Britain had fallen, you know, that's a hell of a job for the states, if they got involved, to take on Germany without having some kind of, basically, we're an aircraft carrier for, yeah. for, to, to, to take the fight back to Germany. Without, Western Europe would be screwed. So, so yes, absolutely, it's brutal and it's horrible, but, but two, a, a, a couple, an elderly couple being killed that might, you know, stop an advance for, for a day, allowing our forces to, to recover and counterattack that might then lead on to other stuff is in, you know, in, in, in the auxiliary units minds and rightly so uh, something that had to be done and was right to do. It's interesting that you raised the point of, uh, you know, it's not dad's army and we don't, we don't sit back and so both myself and Kyle come from a kind of medieval background and particularly I'm a longbowman and it's like, look into medieval history. Like Britain's never done chivalry. It's, it's not been, we, we've always fought to win and it does surprise me in warfare that we, that we kind of still maintain this like stiff upper lip attitude. Yeah. That's just never really been around. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? It is interesting that, that, you know, if you think how ruthless we were in the empire, and, uh, and how 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 ruthless we are on our on our own population, we we were we were never. It's it's a, it's a, I think it's a really recent, certain, you know, certainly last eighty years of this perception of us being a lovely country playing with a, with playing with a straight bat. I don't think we've ever been like that particularly. We couldn't have empire grabbed had we had we have done that. Um, so it's, it's just not the type of people that we were. Yeah, just ask the. Chartists or the protesters at Peterloo. That's how quick we're yeah, easy exactly to turn right. on each other, to be brutally, brutally honest. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Exactly right. Okay. Uh, so, in order to do all these fairly brutal, grisly activities, what kind of weapons are we talking here? I'm guessing this isn't farmers with shotguns and cobbled together Molotov cocktails. What are they actually using to achieve all this? Yeah, and this is where this is where it's really interesting because at a time where, admittedly, a lot of our equipment had been left in Dunkirk and the LDV had been set up and had an amount of time where they were very short of weapons, were drilling, they were drilling with uh, broomsticks and and things like that. Actually, the auxiliary units were given priority on on, on weapons, so uh, they were the first first units to get their hands on the Thompson sub, submachine gun, and that's not just above the LDV Home Guard; that's above the regular army. 
So we're not talking stens here, are we? We're talking something that will work in the event of an invasion. Yeah, yeah, they did have some stens, but yeah, Thompson submachine guns they were given. They were given um, really powerful sniper rifles with .22s with telescopic um, aids. They were they were given each. Uh, so we've got a note from the archives. So Churchill was kept up to date with what was going on, and he'd scribbled on a note saying that all these men must have revolvers. So not just officers, but every single member of the auxiliary units was given a Smith & Wesson, something like that. Every single one. But, but, and I'm talking a lot about guns here, but actually the main weapons weren't guns. It was, it was silent killing because basically you don't want to get into a gunfight. These guns were, were there for, 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 for emergencies and the sniper rifle was there for living off the land or for getting rid of you know, the people we've already talked about or, or, or German yeah. officers or collaborators. Um, but their main weapons were, were silent weapons. So Fairburn, Sykes, Knights, uh, Knives, Knuckle Dusters, um, like brutal stuff because because yeah. what you wanted to do was get the thing that you wanted to blow up. You didn't want to get into a massive massive fight. You wanted to just get rid of the sentry, if possible, leave his body in a mutilated fashion for his for his comrades to find, blow up the thing, and get away without being caught. So you don't want to be firing a gun. What you want to be doing is using your knife or using a knuckle duster. And also the other main weapons they had, which I've just referred to, is explosives. Explosives coming out their ears. They had they had. St- so many explosives i've got like a uh, in the 60s a uh, a group commander in essex still had the spares right this is the spare equipment that he had left over uh he thought the army would come and collect it it was never collected and it was like thousands and thousands of pounds worth of explosives <laughs> his, wow. his loft is like full of explosives and tripwires and and like explosives made up like like time pencils made up I mean, you know, and this is just spares. It's absolutely crazy. So they had it coming out of their ears. And this is because the relations, Churchill, one, saw it as a priority. And two, GHQ saw it as a, as a priority uh, throughout. So they were given priority over, over weapons and they were given priority over, I mean, explosives, like plastic explosives, the latest explosives they, they could get their hands off. And that's why stuff, people like miners were recruited in South Wales and the, and the North East because, because they obviously were, were used to blowing stuff up. So this was, a, yeah. this was really effective. But yeah, they, had, they, they were given a whole range of weapons, stuff that the, the, not only just the, the LDV and Home Guard were, were after, but the regular army as well. Such, such was their priority. Yeah, so state-of-the-art military equipment. After they've got all these weapons and munitions and knives and whatnot, how did they learn how to use them? Were they, where were they trained and did they work alongside other units? Were they there with, say, the commandos or SOE agents or did they go off and do their own sort of thing? No, so they were they were completely isolated, really, because just because of the level of secrecy was so high. Mm. So, so uh, and just going off topic slightly, even when they're... So to start with, they dug, they, they dug their own uh, bunkers not usually very successfully, but eventually they brought in Royal Engineers and Canadians to come in and, 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 and dig them for them. But they brought engineer groups from outside of the county to come and dig them. And then they'd go away again just because they didn't yeah. want a, you know, didn't want to be captured. But yeah, they trained in, in isolation. So they trained in two ways. One is that most counties had a group of auxiliary scout patrols. So these were r- regular soldiers, six to seven men who would have acted as a patrol themselves had the Germans invaded, but equally helped train the men locally in explosives and silent killing and stuff like that. The main headquarters and training centre is a place called Coles Hill House near in the hamlet of Coles Hill, which is near near Highworth uh, Market Town, which is near Swindon. And this is where they did their, their their training. So they were they were basically, and again, this talks to the level of one organisation and two secrecy, one or two members of each patrol from the length of the country would be invited to get a train to Highworth, uh, go to the local post office uh, where they would meet the uh, postmistress Mabel Stranks. By all accounts, quite a 
quite a miserable, uh, angry character. <laughs> uh, you'd go in, give the password, you'd ask for two stamps, something like that, uh, show your credentials, she'd go out the back, ring up Coleshill House, who'd then send around a truck uh, to come and pick you up, and then drive a convoluted route back. So by the time you reach Coleshill House, you'd have absolutely no idea what you're there. But once you were there, you were trained in everything that you would need to know. So what, like, how to how to dig a, an operational base, how to silent killing, how to uh, navigate at night, how to move silently at night, how to blow up tanks, where to place the explosives on on planes, everything that you would need to know. So whilst they whilst they didn't train uh, with SOE uh, operatives or the commandos, these guys were getting certainly before SOE, I suspect the training that these guys later had. Uh, so yeah. it's, the, it, it's that it's that same level, and to the extent that some you know some of the regular soldiers, particularly, and actually some of the civilians as well, would later go on and join the SAS directly. Wow! Such yeah. as their their level of training, and and by then you know they they knew exactly what they were doing. So so yeah, they they their level of training was extraordinarily high. And again, this isn't straight back straight cricket. This is this is dirty, dirty, mucky warfare. The likes of which you just wouldn't appreciate. It's kind of, this kind of leads me neatly into the into the next question, actually, because so once you've got all this training and everything like that, and let's assume the balloon goes up, the church bells start ringing, etc. You know, are there, what are the rules of engagement here? I mean, you say that there was nothing, no orders coming in. They're pretty much left to make it up as they go along. I mean, do, do they have boundaries? Are they military targets, transport targets, collaborating civilians? Are they fair game? What What's the rules of engagement? There, there are no rules of engagement. Uh, wow. uh, yeah, uh, they were, they were, I mean, I, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of trust here and you, you know, it, it, on these guys, uh, and a certain amount of trust that they're not going to, you know, I got asked a question the other day, or, you know, is they were they likely to take out personal revenge <laughs> against people they didn't <laughs> yeah. like in their towns and villages? Well, I guess, yes, there is a potential for that, but actually you have to trust these guys to, 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 to make the right decision. So yeah, there, there's no rules of engagement. Absolutely. Collaborators were fair, were fair game. Because again, they're helping the German army. If you get rid of them, and that that means there's a there's a gap between between the Germans being able to get hold of something or knowing where something is, then absolutely fair game. There's patrols placed purposely. So there's a patrol near me in Branscombe in East Devon that were very near two member uh, uh, mother and son who were in the who were in the BUF and had visited and met Hitler in Germany in the 1930s and were very likely to be collaborators in in the event of invasion and they were placed there and, and you know they, they were absolute absolutely targets and that's you know and it, it wouldn't have just been members of the BUF it would have been anyone that was perhaps providing aid and comfort uh, yeah, to the abs- enemy absolutely yeah. it's it's anything it's anything that doesn't allow the Germans to have it their own way as they they were perceived to have it in France in the Low Country. Yeah, and you mentioned we we've talked a lot about these guys actually, and anybody with an interest in wartime irregular forces just can't help but be falling over the women in SOE. <laughs> yes, um, you know we do, we we use the word guys a lot. I mean, was there a role for women in, in the auxiliaries? Not in the auxiliary units, um, no. But they were hugely involved and massively important in the special duties branch, which is kind of comes from the same place as the auxiliary units, so a combination of. SIS um, and and Section D Home Defence Scheme stuff and and then merged into military intelligence research, but actually were were kept very separate from the auxiliary units. But these these were civilian spies and wireless operators. So and these weren't young fit farmers. These were elderly people, vicars, doctors, vets, teenagers, uh, anyone who could basically be standing on the street uh, in a town or village as the Germans passed through. They would be trained in recognizing formations and weapons and vehicles and direction of travel. They'd write it down and then send it on via dead letter drops and 20, 30 
runners who'd eventually end up with a civilian wireless operator who'd pass the information on to ATS girls in bunkers very similar to, to the ones that the auxiliary units were in, who would then be passing that information on to GHQ. So again, this is taking away the confusion that was the Blitzkrieg and giving GHQ and, and the armed forces the opportunity to make informed decisions about where to where to take on the enemy acts. And the, and, and the women in that played a, the, you know, played a huge role because it was it was, yeah. you know, women particularly basically could stay behind, as it were without being suspicious. So if you if the German army passing through and they saw a 30-year-old, 34-year-old farmer standing on the street looking at them, that's something that's probably going to grab their attention. If it's an elderly woman, if it's a publican, if it's a vicar, if it's a vet, if it's someone who they'd expect, they're not going to be suspicious of them. So so women played a huge role in that in terms of civilians, but the ATS girls were 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 hugely important and you know, we've got examples of ATS girls committing suicides in their bunkers because it was they were spending weeks and weeks down there training and it's just a horrible environment there's at least one girl who, who committed suicide down there so so you know these are and again these these girls got no recognition at all at the when they were stood down in the summer of 44 basically they were so specifically trained they couldn't go anywhere else in the ATS they would they just left there was no role for women within the specific operational auxiliary units so the people who blew stuff up and silently killed, but were absolutely critical in that information gathering and wireless operation stage that, that, that would have played a hugely important role had the Germans come, come through. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's just mind-blowing stuff. And again, you just don't know that this network is is sitting there kind of under our noses, their noses, and it's been here all along. Yeah. And, and it's a testament to the like, kind of security of the whole thing. The, we're, we're only hearing about it over i mean i first heard about the auxiliaries i think about 15 years ago and um when there was a there was a documentary called churchill's secret army which that being prior to that even though i've been looking into the, the second world war since i was 18 so for 30 years it's it didn't even come up no exactly and it, and it won't because i i, I think probably about 70 percent of those involved in both auxiliary units and special duties branch went to the grave without telling anyone, uh, without telling wives. Yeah. You know, I, I, yeah. family members have no idea. We're still informing family members that they the, that they were involved. And I, I, I spoke. I'm, sp- I'm speaking currently to a hundred a hundred and four year old who now lives in Canada, and she was a she was a one of the runners for special duties branch, um, and she's only just told her told her family. There's a guy in South Wales. Who we, uh, about six, seven eight years ago we managed to get permission to march past the cenotaph, which is a huge step because the Home Guard and Bevan boys and all that and Land Army have been marched past for years. Anyway, there's a guy in Wales who only told his family that he was in the auxiliary units the day before the march because he needed a lift to London. So, <laughs> so, so it's just it, it they, they kept it. There's a, there's a, and there's a few reasons why. So one, both groups didn't think they'd done anything because neither were called upon. Thankfully. So they just got on yeah. with their lives and carried on. Uh, two, particularly the auxiliary units, were, as we've discussed, trained and asked potentially to take out members of their own community. And that's not a conversation you want to have post-war with people, potentially. So so you just keep quiet about it. Um, yeah, if you're going to settle down for a pint with the local copper, knowing full well you'd have blown his yeah, head off exactly. at oh. the ring of the church bells, <laughs> exactly you would have... Right. Exactly right. That's that's, you know, I've said it before, that's awkward. That's an awkward conversation. Oh, and, um, and, you know, and... Yeah. and, and Equally, they all sign the Official Secrets Act, and they're, and they're of that a generation that if they're if they're signed, if they sign that Official Secrets Act, they're not going to change it. There's a there's a guy who died fairly recently in Dorset, who we know absolutely 100 percent was in the auxiliary units because he's, we've got his name, 
He still lived in the same house that he lived in during the war. He absolutely was in it. And not only did he not want to talk to us in any depth about his role, he categorically denied that he was in the auxiliary unit. He categorically denied it because he, well, we presumed because he signed the official secrets act, didn't want to talk about it at all. Yeah. And, that, and that went for, as I said, I reckon about 70%. And and the special duties branch, we know, like, yeah. we think there's about three and a half thousand people, civilians involved, probably a lot more, if you think about it, because there was probably two or three observers per cell. There were then 20, 30 runners per cell, plus the wireless operators themselves. At minimum, three and a half thousand civilians were involved. And we know, like, less than a hundred, I would say, who, who, who have come forward and told us their stories, less than a hundred. And they're, and they're all, you know, apart from this 104-year-old, all gone, as far as we know. Yeah. And the special, yeah, and the special duty branch particularly aren't, haven't left anything behind. They haven't got secret bunkers that we can go and go and find. They were just ordinary people. And that's the most fascinating thing about this, the, the special duty branch particularly. They aren't even of army age. They aren't, they, these are just normal civilians who were carrying on with their daily life, as the Yorkshire units were. But, but these guys, you, you know, vicars who had radio sets in their altars. Republicans who you know had had wireless sets in their in their loss, they, but they hadn't they didn't say anything, and everything was taken all their wireless sets and everything were taken behind. So there's nothing remaining about them that, that's tangible almost. At least with the auxiliary units, we have these amazingly disguised operational bases. But with the special duties branch, there's nothing tangible left, which is a which is a real real shame because they they got literally they got absolutely zero public recognition and again they, they were they were you know either signed official secrets act or sworn to secrecy and they absolutely knew the risk if you were caught observing the german army as they passed through or if you were caught as a runner with a secret message or if you were more likely caught with a wireless set and if you think about it this isn't like soe where you're able to shift your wireless set around every now and then you were in a set location with your wireless yeah. set and you were likely to be caught very very quickly and if all, equally yeah. each runner didn't know who the other runner was in the, in the sequence if one of those runners was pulled out then the whole system would collapse immediately and they all knew this they all knew the risk they were taking so so they were you know again it would have it's essentially a suicide mission but they got zero recognition and that is why you know this perception of britain as a you know a pitchforks and not really prepared has, has carried on with this momentum because people just don't no, and people, I feel like, you know, how, if you're sitting there as an auxiliary unit member or as a special duties branch and you're reading something or you're watching Dad's Army about this, you know, buffoons, hilarious as it is, I mean, I'd, I'd feel, I'd be, in, in internal turmoil must have been, must have been crazy because it's just, you just want to scream. It's not, you know, it wasn't like that. So we've, you've kind of touched on this in a few other comments, but um, how did these people basically feel about this? These are highly trained, highly motivated people who were prepared to lay down their lives in the thick of fighting the enemy, but they're left behind in England. I mean, there's fighting in, say, Greece and North Africa and Italy. You mentioned they were stood down in 1944. There's an awful lot of war going on between the threat of invasion <laughs> on 44. How do they feel about being left out? Yeah, well, I think... <sighs> As the war went on, as I said, some went into special forces. Others, as the threat of invasion diminished, were called up in kind of 43, 44 and went into various various units. So some did. But 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 as I said, most of them were in reserved occupations. And I guess they kind of felt like most people did in reserved occupations. I guess there was a certain amount of frustration. But if you're a farmer, for example, you're working your ass off because, you know, that, you know, you're, you're doing more farming than you've ever done before because the country is absolutely... Oh. 
um, is absolutely in need of, of food from from our shores. So, so yeah, I, I feel like there was a, a frustration, but I think also they 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 also had a pride that they were highly trained and you know also had this little secret. I mean, they can you know lots of wives we've spoken to over the years thought their husbands were having affairs and they got white feathers and all this terrible stuff. But actually, I think there's a combination oh. of frustration that they couldn't join up and, and go and do stuff. But equally, you know, they they had a a certain pride that they you know that they knew that what they were prepared to do at, at, in the event of, of an invasion and the guys that we've spoken to over the years certainly had that that they you know they were modest modest guys but also they had still had that kind of grim determination to to, to say you know if 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 it had, if the if the balloon had gone up we'd absolutely have done our job uh, across the board and I, so I, I think there is a there is a a combination of things. It's probably a very confusing time for a lot of them. But yeah, so some got called up, but most of them were yeah reserved up for miners or, or, or farmers and things. So they they just got on with their day jobs, and that's exactly the same as, yeah. as, as when they were stood down and the auxiliary units in November forty four. They just got on with it. They just carried on farming. Yeah, they just yeah. they just shut up their operational bases. So um, the campaign's on for you know for for more recognition for these people. How would uh, people listening to this podcast get involved with that campaign? Yeah, so it'll be. I mean, if you visit our website uh, staybehinds dot com, you can one learn a lot more about about these guys and, and and what they got up to. But equally, you know, anything to 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 spread the word and to get more information. I think that's the, that's the most important thing from our, from our perspective is to is to really try and find out as much as we can about these guys to find out the location of their operational bases which we still many 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 that we still don't have a clue where they are and they could be you know fully intact just anyone that has any information because because it's so secret we often have to go off like village gossip and rumors and and and, and stuff like that so you know any any rumors of of a sometimes they describe themselves as like a ultimate home guard or a you know SAS home guard style units or rumors that, <laughs> there's a rumor a village near me that that I did a talk the other day and uh, about the special duties branch, and this guy came up to me and said, "Oh, you're probably uh, you're probably talking about the spies in the Molsters' arms, were you?" So after the after the war, there was a rumor going around that there were spies in the Molsters' arms. We know absolutely there was a there was a civilian wireless set in that tiny tiny village. So it's more than likely that these guys, that the publican was a was a special duty branch operator. So that's the kind of stuff we go for. So anyone with any information like that would be would be great to hear from. But yeah, check out the site, uh, have a look around. I've got a book coming out next year. Uh, by that <laughs> and uh <laughs> um but yeah oh we'll get you back on for next year for the yeah uh, yeah so that'll be that'll be because i'm going i'm going even i'm going deeper than uh than special duties branch and uh and auxiliary units there are even more secret layers of resistance post-occupation resistance rather than invasion. so i'm doing auxiliary units, special duties but then there's like section seven there's urban industrial saboteurs there's home guard shock squads Lots of really fascinating stuff. So, yeah. We would love to get you back um, on next year yeah. to find out what's pissed you off when researching all that. Yeah, lot. no, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> love to, love to. Well, thank you very much, Andy. I mean, that was that was fascinating. It was brutal. It was dark. <laughs> it was, you know, it, it, it was it was breathtaking. Good. No, I'm glad you enjoyed. Well, you can learn more about the fascinating work of the Coleshill Auxiliary Research Team and work through the British Resistance Archive um, at their website, as Andy says, www.staybehinds.com. Or you can follow him on Twitter at Chats1. Um, and we'll have uh, links for those in the show notes. What can I say, Andy? Thank you very much for coming on. That, that has been stunning. No, absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Yes. Thank you so much. 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And you can leave comments, thoughts, and please send your own history rages using the hashtag History Rage. If you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe, leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot for listening, everyone. Bye bye. See you later. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.